On the Empire Podcast this week, we delve into Cloud Atlas, we peer through our fingers at Guillermo del Toro's Mama, which is a horror film he produced, not his mum. We coo with the latest film from the relentlessly prolific Terence Malick, and we hear General Sod sing in Song for Marion. Plus, we've got the latest movie news and views, and not one, but two Bond girls, as both Naomi Harris and Olga Kurylenko drop into the booth, which is good news for our ooh branch. Sorry. Anyway, hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that was started because we believe that movies have the power to change lives. Also, it gets us out in the office for an hour or so every Thursday and we can buy biscuits for guests, keep them for ourselves and then claim them back on expenses. Win. As ever, I'm joined by a hideous rampaging cold that just won't quit and three of my learned and esteemed colleagues from the world's biggest movie magazine, which, in case you were wondering, is Empire. First up is Empire's Queen Geek, forever protected by an army of soldier geeks who would gladly sacrifice themselves for her right to believe that Nathan Fillion would make a better Han Solo than Nathan Lane. It's a controversial <laughs> top theory, but... I stick to that position. Yeah. You know, no matter who comes against me, I think that is the case. Absolutely. However, I actually genuinely think there's only one Han Solo and it is young Harrison Ford. Young Harrison Ford. And by the way, I forgot to actually introduce you after that big build-up. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. In case you weren't aware. Next is a man so disturbed by a good day to die hard and his resemblance to Bruce Willis, which mainly means he's bald, he's got stubble and he's incoherent during interviews that he spent the last week or so telling everyone he knows he's actually an Arnold Fosloo lookalike. That's how bad it gets for James Dyer. Imhotep lives. <laughs> Imhotep. Yeah. Imhotep. 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 Good old Arnold Fosloo, who right. won't be seen, I don't think, in G.I. Joe 2, because he is now Jonathan Price. Does anyone remember that? Does anyone remember G.I. Joe, the first one? Whatsoever. Very, very. It was movie. such a complex plot. I it have was. trouble keeping track. It was complex. Because at the end of the movie, Arnold Foslu, who's like the evil terrorist, yep. uh, undergoes face-changing surgery. Or he, he takes a pill that changes his face. Or he does something anyway. and He, he becomes, takes a pill that takes, changes his listen, face. This is the not, best film in the world. That's not the most stupid thing in that film. Uh, and then he becomes Jonathan Price. And so for uh, G.I. Joe 2... Uh, contractual obligation I believe this is a, this is a for that one uh, he will be back as Jonathan Price hopefully doing an Arnold Fosloo impersonation which would be amazing yeah anyway last but not least is our resident art house guru the only man on the planet <laughs> he's wincing because he, he doesn't know what I'm going to say next he doesn't know what I'm going to say he's the only man on the planet who thinks Casablanca would have been immeasurably improved if Humphrey Bogart had been caught up in a passionate romance with Ingmar Bergman it's <laughs> Phil DeSimlian that's ridiculous I'd hate to watch that <laughs> you know you love it uh, um, <laughs> hi Chris how are you <laughs> good Phil how are you Great, yeah, nice. would you like that would you like Casablanca with, with Bogey getting it Bogey on with a, a Swedish Bogey. director be a bit be a bit <laughs> no not really no I've got nothing. I've got nothing to come back with. Maybe the troubles. That's a horrible thought. That's bleeding edge humour. The troubles of three little people in this world don't amount to more than a hill of wild strawberries, eh? Something like that? Maybe? No? No, that's good. It's the beginning of a beautiful persona. Uh Uh-huh. No? I'm yeah, out. a load okay. of Fanny anyway. Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> That's good cracking with your questions. You've been sending them in via Twitter, email, and Facebook, but frankly, we've just been taking them on some Twitter. Uh, at Cringe Radio wrote in several times uh, across several tweets to get our attention, so I went, okay, okay, okay. Uh, basically, to condense the tweets, uh, asking if we think that the new Hammer are the premier horror studio in the world at the moment, and if we take pride in their resurgence, because let's run the old Union Jack up the flagpole. They're British. I'm not sure that there's that much competition as a pure horror studio. Mm. Is yeah. there? There's not. I mean, there's, not. Th- there's lots of, you know, I think there's actually quite a lot of good horrors coming out. We're going to discuss one today in Mama. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure that they have a lot of... There's lots of studios that dabble there. in horror. Yeah. 
but I think Hammer are the only ones who set out to go we are horror we are going to scare you yeah I want to see them go back and start doing Draculas and Frankensteins and scary people and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde all that sort of stuff I want to see that You know, I want to see them tra- tackle something that feels like a classic Hammer movie I don't think they've done that so far well the woman in black was along the same you know yeah no, it wasn't as cheesy big crew yeah, no yeah, definitely not cheesy at all yeah. but um, I want East European villagers making a sign of the cross I want them pulling their shutters <laughs> I want garlic I want you know people who look like Peter Cushing or Andrew Kerr or whoever it was anyone anyone at all Christopher Lee is you know he's been in, he's been in one already he's been in the resident yeah, but you know can he, can he pop up in something else do you think you can do that nowadays and still make it scary yes okay that was Christopher Lee you sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger yes it's, 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 it's hard to compare isn't it I mean who else are we comparing them to in terms of horror specific studios we're not really is it? it's, it's just, are because, they making yeah. the best horror films out there at the moment are they making good horror films I don't know if they're you know the so they've, done, they've done The Resident they've done Let Me In they've done Wakewood which was a very mm. underrated horror film with yeah. uh, Aidan Gillen and Timothy Spall and, uh, and of course they did uh, The Woman in Black which was a big hit and they're about to start on the sort of pseudo sequel to that mm. I believe mm. which is The Woman in Orange, the woman in orange. Yes, and now the woman in EE. It's basically just Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Bacon rambling for ninety minutes, making tenuous connections between his films and Coronation Street, which I still don't think he's seen. I'd be surprised, frankly, if Kevin Bacon had seen uh, an episode of Coronation Street. Um, okay, next question is from at Gut Punch Prod. Interesting. I don't know if that's a sectarian thing or is that someone who's got a production company called Gut Punch. I'm I'm leaning towards the latter. Hopefully. Let's hope. It's not a recommendation to gut punch Protestants. Uh, what's the best ever seventh movie in a franchise? It's obviously Mission mm. to Moscow. Someone had to say it, didn't they? Uh, the Death Ray of Dr. Mabuza. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Diamonds Are Forever, let's be perfectly honest. Um, yeah. yeah. Star Trek yeah. Seven. that was Generations, which I have a fondness for, but it's by no means the best. No, it's, but it's not bad. No, um, it's not as, bad. As seventh films in a franchise go, it's yeah. probably up there. Yeah, yeah, but the eighth one's better. Friday the 13th, it is, if I'm right in thinking, The New Blood, which is it not It is great, The New Blood, yeah. But, not but if we're going horror franchises, New Nightmare is the seventh, and that's very good. That is very, very good. So That is very good. Uh, yeah, so at the mm. moment, any... any Deathly I, feel, I feel like an auctioneer at the moment. Any votes for Carry On Cabby? Anyone? It would be Anyone? Deathly Hallows Part 1. No, it would be Deathly Hallows Part 1. Part 1? <laughs> yeah, which is, which is no, not, not in that, any then. way good. So. No. Yeah. So not that one. So, so what's, definitely what's, Mission to Moscow. Yes. So we're saying Mission to Moscow. <laughs> so there are no advances. On, I feel I do feel like you know someone on Bargain Hunt. Any advances on <laughs> Wes Craven's New Nightmare? Wes Craven's New Nightmare going once. No one's going to make a case for Diamonds of Forever around this <laughs> table, are they? No. No. Helen? Certainly you not. You love Bond. There's got to be some other ones. If you were sent something to Carry On, do you have to Carry you On Cabby is the seventh. Carry On Cabby? Uh, I don't even yeah. remember Carry On Cabby. I'll be honest, I haven't seen it, but I believe it was one that they went back to black and white for right. after having been in colour for a while. Is that where Kenneth Williams um, just rides around <laughs> with Sid James? It's entirely then, possible. That'd be um, brilliant. Can you imagine if it was like Kenneth Williams and Sid James but Sir James was the cabbie and he was so like collateral, a, collateral with more but, dirty laughs but with, yeah with boob jokes and, and <laughs> who were misses mild racism amazing yeah <laughs> guessing that would be there's a hit out on Babs yeah yeah, yeah. Barbara Windsor oh he's got go a big down. one his gun his gun you see and then oh I'm going to fire off some shots in your chest he would say meaning bullets well, obviously. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Chris. Yeah, that's, 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 What's the seventh yeah. Star Trek? No, we just had Generations. Joe Generations. The first one that mixes the original series and, and the next generation. Is that any good? It's the one where Kirk and uh, and Picard end up in a big ribbon of light yeah. called the Nexus, where it's always Christmas and they sit around a tree. That's basically the yeah. film in a nutshell. They, they basically fight a giant space ribbon. 
Yeah, and, and Malcolm McDowell goes around screaming at it. It's, uh, that doesn't sound any good. No, it, basically it was one of these sort of films by committee, I think, where they just thought, what can we do to get Shatner and Patrick Stewart together? And then they made up this ridiculous plot. Yeah. Uh, other horror franchises are spring to mind at the moment. Halloween is Halloween H2O. I quite is, like that. Yeah, it's a, right. a good entry, yeah. uh, but by no means is it... Well, the, the question is, what's the best ever seventh movie in a franchise? Not, is the seventh movie, is there a franchise where the seventh movie is the best? Obviously, that's going to happen with Fast New Nightmare's New Nightmare's the second best, though, isn't it? I would argue New Nightmare is the second best Nightmare on Elm Street after the first one. I would argue it... Uh, you could I be, like the third could, one a lot. You could even make a case it might be the best. Really? You could even make... Uh, Nightmare so on Elm Street it, has dated a lot. In which case, I think we are saying that that is the, yeah, uh, that's the winner. Worst Craven's New Nightmare. Sold to the man with the creepy razor fingers. Uh, okay, uh, we have an Oscars question. I try to avoid Oscars questions. So you're about to see why, but um, we got one anyway from at Guinea Pigwin. I'm, I'm hopefully pronouncing that right. What award category would you most like to add to the Oscars? Best beard. If only so, Ben Affleck would definitely win something. I don't know. <laughs> Clooney's beard was pretty damn good at the Baftas. Phil's just pointed his own beard. Or it's a bit scraggly. The yeah. guy who I played could say something libelous at this point, but I'm not going oh, to. Oh, good. I see good. what you did there. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> With your lawyer hat on. With my lawyer hat on, it's I've censored hat. myself. Good. But I mean, what, I mean, is, without being facetious, is there anything that's, you know, missing, do we think? Anything um, they could actually benefit arguably from? Arguably stunts, possibly. Um, or uh, digital performance would be the other one that springs to mind but then you'd have to you'd have to do something like you do with animation where there have to be a certain number of qualifying entries yeah. uh, released in the year in order to for the, the category to kind of you know for example if there's if there's 15 animated films released then there are three slots if there are 16 then there are five slots for the animation category you could do something similar with digital performance where if there are X number of films containing but then that it comes down to are you, does it have to specifically be one where it's voiced and motion captured on you and how much of it is exactly. you does uh, it come voice honest, work on I've, uh, yeah I've, I've argued in the past that this is a massively fluid thing yeah. um, because you know a lot of animated uh, films forever have essentially used you know uh, reference from real life actors uh, how much of a digital performance is really the actor and mm. not other people you know Hulk the, the, in the past has been played by several different people and not just the guy playing Bruce Banner so where do you kind of draw the line I mean it's it's a it's a really big question for Hollywood that's the only reason I raise it and it's it's something that they might bring in in some form in the future I must yeah. confess that all got a lot more intelligent than I was expecting <laughs> so what, you should, you should start with beards it would be nice if everyone was nominated for the best song could perform and then everyone could vote on which was the best like in well, stars in their eyes yeah that would be or something yeah. so but yes, vote live on the night Oscars got talent because they do Button's usually out. perform yeah, exactly you could vote like exactly everyone could vote live interaction and um, I was thinking what you were saying though would that make the Andy Circuses of the world happy or unhappy if that was acknowledged in a special yeah. category when all the while they've been saying this is about yeah. a form of given that he'd acting. win it every year I imagine it might be very happy indeed <laughs> I said the Andy Circus is not Andy Circus we have many because Andy Circuses because yeah, he plays many parts down. that's true I think uh, no, I, I, I agree I don't think it should be ghettoised in that sense however realistically it's never going to be nominated otherwise probably in the same way that animated films don't have a real shot it seems to me at winning Best Picture and they get ghettoised in their own little category anyway at Andrew Knowles 10 ask oh this one's going to be interesting Ooh. which of you folks has the biggest DVD slash Blu-ray collection I think I, I, I knew the answer to this yeah and then he sold them all yeah it was Jimbo it was me I had absolutely thousands of them I had I had nearly a thousand VHS tapes before uh, before I switched to DVD and then I had many more of those uh, but yeah we moved house and we didn't have room and, and I had to sell lots of them 
Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've also sold a whole bunch. I, I lived in the States for a short while and I sold a ton at a car boot sale. Very good. There was a guy who won Countdown who was uh, one of the, the guys who bought for me. And I was like, I, I don't recognize you from somewhere. And then I realized he was on Countdown. Wow. You yeah. recognised him from Countdown. I recognised him from Countdown. It says a lot about he you. Must, wow. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a bad time in my life. <laughs> uh, anyway, I sold a load. Uh, so now, because I, I have this app now where I can mm. actually count how many I have. Uh, so I have about 600 now, but that's not that's not a lot, I guess. But yeah. it's the thing, isn't it? Like I, I, When I moved to DVD, I ended up basically throwing away all my VHS tapes because nobody wanted them. And then I kind of sold all the DVDs thinking, well, now everything's going to go Blu-ray. But then I realised that working for Empire can't afford to buy 2,000 Blu-rays. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, you know, stuffed. I, yes. have, I have sort of, what, two and a half, three bookcases of DVDs. I don't know how much that adds up to, really. So you want to get this app. You want yeah, to get maybe. this app. Yeah. You scan it uh, in, and then it tells you how many, tells you how many, uh, like, it doesn't tell you how many films you have, because yeah. sometimes you have, like, the Bond has 22, mm. but it just counts it as one on the okay, app. Okay, fine. But still, I know I have about 600. Wow. Yeah, but no, no, I mean, there's a fundamental point again. I think we talked about this in the podcast before about how people's collections are changing. Yeah. So I am more and more now gravitating towards watching films on Netflix or through iTunes or SkyGo, and so I'm have them in digital form, but I won't have them in physical form. Even though I do like to hold things, I wrote a yeah. whole blog about this once about how I like to have a collection. You like to because it comes in, you people come in, you're you're flat, and they see and they your, judge you, they see your taste, <laughs> and they judge you, mm-hmm. which is why. I hide the Fast and Furious <laughs> films when people come in, but uh, for the most part, they're up there for, for people to see. Mm. I've, I have become a little bit more picky in recent years. I went through a phase initially of just buying anything I liked, and then I went through a phase of buying things I thought I should like, mm. and I've kind of moved away from both of those, and I just buy things I actually really want to see again, and um, you mm. know, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get some use out of I can tell you definitively, d- definitively. <laughs> but you can say definitively. I can't say the word. It's ironic. Can, yeah, uh, that Nuns on the Run is not available on Blu-ray. No. Yeah. Oh. If you want to have your question read out on the show, you can Facebook us where we're Empire Magazine. You can tweet us where we're at Empire Magazine. Please use the hashtag Empire Podcast, otherwise it'll slip by us unnoticed. Or you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, we're tending to get a lot of spam email about peanuts enlargements and whatnot. So please do send us something of substance. Also, they don't work. Really? They don't work. Duh. I, I mean, uh, I heard you Andy Circus. Andy Circus told me they don't work. Uh, if you have any Oscar questions, we asked one this week. We allowed one in. Uh, we're going to be recording a special Oscars, a very special Oscar podcast immediately. The Sleepy after, Podcast. Yeah, this is probably the worst idea in the history of bad ideas. <laughs> but uh, James, you're going to be part of it. Phil, you're going to be in, aren't you? I will be so present, if not conscious. Yes. Helen, you're going to be in Glasgow. I will be, yes. Where you'll be interviewing Mr. Joss Whedon. Yes. For a future podcast. And mostly to become his best friend and hang out with him. <laughs> mostly to become his best friend. Uh, yeah, and get his email address, which yep. James singularly failed to do whenever he When was. I was, in fact, in Scotland with Joss Whedon. In Scotland. This is a thing that happens. Apparently. Does he live there? Is he, you know, he, he may like, do. Yeah. I was in Edinburgh, though, though. Helen's going to be in, in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, it's probably, that's beyond Joss Whedon at Mac.com probably it probably yeah. is let's, let's give it a go shall we <laughs> synchronize <laughs> thousands of people emailing this poor this poor guy he's probably a stockbroker in Arkansas probably getting thousands of emails at one time there are and stockbrokers in Arkansas Arkansas needs stock and people to break it right <laughs> 
That's my understanding of what stockbrokers do. Yeah, so that's that's stock breaking. Chicken, don't, don't, don't disabuse people of that notion, please. Um, what was he talking about? Anyway, uh, yes, special. you're going to be in Glasgow. Phil's, uh, Phil, James, and I will be watching the Oscars through the night, bringing it to you on EmpireOnline.com, and then for some reason we're going to be walking into this booth uh, at six in the morning and bringing you a podcast, which will be up at about ten a.m. or so. And there'll be no lawyers. There'll be no lawyers. <laughs> no one with a lawyer hat on. So well, what could go wrong? Yes, that oh, should be. This should be fine. Incoherent at best, wildly libelous at worst. So that's going to be fun. Um, we'll try our best to tackle your Oscar questions there, as well as discussing the awards themselves. Fancy that, and the best hosts, etc. We'll be picking out Seth MacFarlane's best line. Hi there, Ali, the editor here. Just a little word of warning, if you haven't seen Skyfall, the next 14 minutes or so contain an interview with Naomi Harris from Skyfall, and she and Chris and myself discuss big plot points from the film. So if you haven't seen Skyfall, feel free to jump ahead about 14 minutes. Time for a lovely guest now. Uh, in case you hadn't been paying attention, 007. Skyfall, which opened last October, is the most successful Bond film of all time. Of all time! Uh, grossing over a billion dollars at the global box office, over £100 million in the UK alone, the first movie to do so. It even picked up a couple of BAFTAs the other week, the first Bond movie to win one since 1963. One of the things we couldn't really talk about at the time of this release, uh, apart from in our spoiler specials, obviously, was Naomi Harris's character, who was billed as Eve, a smart and sexy field agent who turned out at the end to be dun, 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 the bad guy behind no wait a refamped <laughs> a refamped Miss Moneypenny ready to unleash her pitmans on unsuspected invoices and memos everywhere with Skyfall out on Blu-ray this week uh, Naomi Harris dropped in the pod booth to talk to us about keeping stum about that and much much more and she was talking to myself and Alistair Plum uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by um Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think we've been formally introduced. <laughs> My name is Naomi. Naomi. Of yes, course, of Naomi course it is. Harris. Harris. That's it. That's, that's it. it. How many times have you heard that line? Uh, that's the first Skyfall. time, actually. You're me. That is the first time. Very original. Yeah. yeah. I was very impressed by that. Actually. Points for Chris. Yeah. There you go. That's incredible because I would have thought that you would have heard it constantly since no, Skyfall came out. No. Okay. Mm. So you are, of course, in the film uh, Eve Moneypenny, and this must be one of the first times you can actually talk about that. It is, and it's such a release. <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing to have that weight off my shoulders because I'm a terrible liar and having to keep that secret <laughs> for like almost a year was like torture for me yeah. and all the journalists wanted to do because everyone suspected everyone kind of knew but they just wanted confirmation for me so they were all trying to get it out of me it was a nightmare Mm-hmm. I was so tense during all my interviews. So <laughs> now I can case. say, yes, I am Miss Moneypenny, yes. <laughs> because uh, whenever you were first cast, I think it was Baz Bammy Boy in the Daily Mail. I know. Within he about a week. He was the first one, yeah. 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 He, had, uh, he said, uh-huh. yes, Naomi Harris is Miss Moneypenny. Yeah. And, uh, so what sort of disclaimers are you given? What sort of things do you have to sign? What, what are you told not to say and, and what to say? Um, well, you have to sign a confidentiality agreement when mm-hmm. you join up, and so you're not allowed to say anything about the any plot twists or anything like that in the script. And obviously, I was told that I couldn't say that I was Miss Moneypenny, <laughs> so or give away anything, you know, about big, you know, events that happened, cast members changing, uh-huh. so very dramatically with M, that kind of thing. You're not allowed to say. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's like joining MI6. It probably is. <laughs> and of course, it was a bit of mystery as well because we we know Moneypenny to be that M's secretary tethered to a desk mm-hmm. and Eve 
certainly for the first half of Skyfall, is a very, very different proposition. Yeah, um, she's uh, she's out there, you know, in, in amongst all the action, um, firing guns and driving fast cars and, yeah, like an equal to Bond. Absolutely. Not quite as accomplished with a rifle as he, but mm. um, he didn't still kill out there. You yeah, didn't kill I, him. Yeah, very nearly though, very nearly. <laughs> Hit him in the side. It's I was fine. just following orders. That was the only reason. Yeah, not my fault. That was a pretty tricky shot, I think, for anybody. Was, I'm not sure was. Bond would have taken that shot. Yeah. When I think of early Bonds, when I think of Connery's Bond particularly, um, I think of Bond wearing a hat and coming in and throwing the hat at the hat stand. Mm. Was there any talk about Daniel's Bond wearing a hat in that scene? Just to complete the circle? No, no, no. He's not a hat wearing Bond, really, though, is he? He's not. He's no, no. You can't do that. Can you can't. get away with? Because uh, I think Sam Mendes on on set, he wears trilbies and whatnot, or he wears yes. flat caps. He, yeah. he likes to wear his flat caps. Yeah. yeah, he bought everyone at the end a flat cap, actually. Oh, really? With Skyfall and Grace. So? Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> Skyfall yes, flat cap. I have one. Yes. Ah, oh, I'm <laughs> jealous. You could have lobbed one of those at the hat stand. It might have been breaking the fourth wall slightly, <laughs> but I think you could have gone for it. Yeah. And got away with it. I think he could have. Yeah. I think he could get away with anything, to be honest. Yeah. After the amazing job he did with the film. It's not bad, is it? It's, it's not pretty bad. pretty amazing. So it's made, at the moment, $1.1 billion around the world. It's the first movie to hit £100 million pounds in the UK. Uh, oh. I think it, it obviously won the BAFTA yep. for our standard British, British film. film. Yep. I think it also is favourite to win the FA Cup and the Darts World <laughs> Championship as well. It's doing I think an, if it went in there, it would win. <laughs> definitely. It's doing incredibly well, basically. Um, and what's it like to be part of that? Part of Because you, you, you know you sign up for a Bond film, you know it's going to be mm. big. But well, I don't, don't think anyone knew it was going to be big. To be honest, you don't. You know, you just feel, especially because it was the 50th anniversary, you just feel a lot of pressure, you know, and you just hope that it's going to be good and you hope that people are going to enjoy it. But you never know when you make a film. That's the thing, you know. Mm. It's like you can have a great cast, you can have a great script, great director, and then it just doesn't somehow come together. You know, you see that. You see so much money pumped into films sometimes and they're huge flops. Yeah. So you never know. Everybody just kind of holds their breath until that moment it's released and the audience sees it for the first time but everybody has just loved it so but this has far exceeded anybody's expectations you know nobody expected it to become like the seventh highest grossing movie in the world of all time you know who expects that when you make a movie no one uh, we had Jai Courtney, uh, the new John McClane Jr. in Die Hard 5 in very, very recently. And I'm drawing parallels here with you being drawn into a franchise where you kind of have to fit yourself and your character within it. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you first got the gig, go, right, well, I'm going to have to sit down and watch 22 movies <laughs> back to back? I mean, I'm curious because there's a lot of heritage to suddenly yeah, have no. to know backwards. No, but, you know, because being a Londoner, you know, I, you, I grew up watching Bond. Okay. So um, I felt like I was already versed in that language and that world already. And I, th- I thought actually the thing that I shouldn't do mm. was to go back and watch the movies because uh. I knew that what they wanted. Well, you know, Sam's brief to me was he said, I want you to represent the modern woman. I want some originality brought to this role. And so I thought the worst thing for me to do would be to go back and look at those movies and try to kind of replicate what it means to be a Bond girl of from that time because it's wrong you know and so what actually really helped me was um, speaking to a former MI6 agent Mm -hmm. um, and asking him questions about his life in the field and then it just made me realise that actually you know this is a real world and what if I was truly part of it and how would I fit into that world and what would Mm -hmm. I do and all those kind of those kind of questions I asked myself and and Eve was a result of that thought process really 
and Daniel, uh, Daniel particularly, I think, from uh, from the moment he signed on to the role, has been very much about legitimising Bond mm-hmm. and dragging him kicking and screaming into the into the noughties. And yeah. there's all this talk about you know Pierce Brosnan's Bond being a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. And um, I'm just interested by the the attitude towards Bond girls mm-hmm. in the in the Craig films mm-hmm. because it, it struck me that. In Quantum of Solace, Olga Kurylenko's character yeah. is the first Bond girl that Bond doesn't sleep with. You are the second. So does it, was, that a, was that a conversation that, that took place well, about... No, but he can't sleep with me. I know he can't. He can't as Miss Moneypenny. That's true. But yeah, at the time, we don't know you Miss Moneypenny. never break those boundaries. So <laughs> that's the thing. But yeah, no, I definitely think, you know, he's um, changing the way... Bond women, Bond girls are, are viewed in the mm. movies and I think he definitely has a big part in that, you know. Um, I think he definitely d- didn't want to have a girl as such play opposite him as well. He wanted a woman, he wanted mm. much more of an equal, he wanted someone who's going to challenge him intellectually and a bit of banter backwards and forwards and that's just much more interesting I think rather mm. than just a girl who you can easily, you know, seduce into bed and get a kit off and <laughs> where's the fun in that really? <laughs> Tell me about it, yeah. <laughs> It gets really dull. <laughs> when you signed on, you must have, I'm guessing, been jumping for joy. But did you also yeah. think, I'm going to have to be basically very, very close friends with Daniel Craig? Not that that's a chore, mm-hmm. but was there a pressure that you had to get on? Like, really? If we can- yeah, you know, to be quite honest with you, whenever you get cast um, in anything <laughs> and you're working with somebody, there's always that terror moment because you think, if I hate this person, it's going to be a nightmare. And, you know, especially on this because it's like seven months shoot. Yeah. So that would be hell. But the first time I met Daniel, he saw me um, walking down the corridor. He ran after me, hit me over the head and said, where are you going, <laughs> stupid? And then gave me a massive hug. So I knew we were going to be all right. Yeah. I imagine that when you become a Bond girl, you're suddenly known by so many different people across the world. You're internationally famous suddenly. Yeah, no, but that's so interesting, actually, because um, when I got cast, people kept on saying, your life is going to change. You're not going to be able to walk down the street. Um, Everybody's going to know you. And I was absolutely terrified because I've been acting for 25 years now, you know, (laughs) Um, and I love it. But I love acting and then going back to my personal life. I don't like the mixture of the two, really. Um, And it's been fantastic because it is everywhere it is huge and I feel so proud to be part of it but I still get to go on the tube the buses and Mm. nobody recognises me and my private life is totally unchanged which is brilliant that's I'm very pleased to hear that I was just worried there might have been people shouting money banner no not at all (laughs) never had that ever ever never ever ever. so have you done a thing on the tube where you're on the platform and there's a poster of you you. Oh yeah, you yeah, have, yeah. You've had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that, and I, I secretly smile to myself, but nobody else notices, which is great. <laughs> so you don't ask a tourist. Can you just take a quick pic of me, just no. for this? Because that's me. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> but that's me. And so I, I guess you can't talk about where you want Money Penny to go in future instalments. Uh, I yeah. can talk about where I personally would yeah. like her to go, which is back out in the field I think because Mm. um, I think uh, I've got so much um, stick for being a terrible shot terrible driver (laughs) not really a great agent really I think I want to prove everyone wrong are you aware of a small internet phenomenon there's a photograph of you Okay. Really? Of course, you, this is scary. Don't, don't be scared. This I'm, is, I'm this scared is entirely positive. It's a photograph of you dashing out of the car. You're on the bridge by yeah. where uh, Bond leaps onto the train. Uh-huh. And you've got your gun out. And you're just about to line up for something. Uh-huh. And there is a totally nonplussed Turkish woman in big uh, coat. And she's wearing her, you know, um, shawl and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
and she just doesn't she doesn't she doesn't give any sort of crap she's just standing there and this person has become this kind of twitter phenomenon oh really okay after this interview we're going to show you and you'll see and if you can mention it to Sam Mendes I'd be very grateful because oh, I would really? love her to be in the next Bond film okay alright she's just standing there going what <laughs> What's, what, what? I don't, this is it's fantastic it's hilarious I've got to show you have you got it on your phone here oh <laughs> oh my gosh that is hilarious do you remember that lady I don't she remembers at you all. <laughs> Wow, but it looks like it's two different photos sliced together, doesn't it? Does. it? Because exactly. she's in completely in her own own world. But believe me, we got the DVD, we got the Blu-ray, oh. and we scoured the Blu-ray, and she's there. And she's there. You can see the back of that extra in one shot. Yeah, we actually we asked people online to Photoshop her into other different movies. <laughs> so you now see her, you know, in the middle of um, Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I love the way she's eyeing the camera as well. Oh, she's so pressing she's all, all kinds of walls. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, one last thing, Naomi, and then we'll let you go. Um, just talking about future installments of Bond, he said that Moneypenny and Bond can never really consummate that relationship. Yeah. And there was a bit of a will they or did they, didn't they? Debate. I know, people thought it that was, they yeah. had. I actually thought they had because there yeah. was a line when you're walking. There's that great shot as it's going through the uh, casino, mm-hmm. and you're making lines about you know you're good with your hands. Wink, wink. <laughs> hello, I'm Bond. <laughs> and I thought I don't know. I was naive and suddenly 15 again. Also because it, uh, after that scene where you're shaving Bond, it cuts to fireworks in the sky, which is cinematic shorthand for. Yeah. So, but yeah. they didn't categorically. They did not. Well, no. Well, we didn't shoot that. But actually, that that scene actually got cut short because okay. it was actually originally shot so that you would know categorically that it, nothing happened. Interesting. And then they re-edited it so they left it a bit more open. Did the scene originally end with Daniel hitting you in the back of the head? Was that no? Um, no get out of here, money penny. <laughs> Run along. Um, no. So, do you think that that this might that the the sexual chemistry between the two of you that that tension? Might might be released ultimately in a future instalment? I hope not. You don't think so? No. Because it's always more exciting when it's just like sexual tension that's unfulfilled, isn't it? Mm. It's awful when it's... Uh Ali and I have the same thing. Yeah. yeah, we have Chris and I. It's, it's, this is why it it's so hot in this room. It crackles. It's, it's Chris and I. I felt it you as felt soon it. as I yeah. walked in. Yeah. Wow. No, but I, I, I admire their decision to make it more ambiguous. I think mm. that was definitely the right thing to do because mm. I mean, it makes you want to rewatch the film and pick up more of the nuances. And mm. oh, I've spoiled it now. No, no. Truth. Sorry. Nonsense, nonsense. And uh, <laughs> I look forward to seeing uh, the next movie. Do you know have any any idea when that might be going? I You've been think given the call. It'll be next year now. Next year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which brings with it a, a, a certain pressure again now how do you top Skyfall how do you top it I don't know that's going to be a tough one I'm looking forward to seeing Eve getting back out in the field because how are your transcription skills how, how's your shorthand <laughs> <laughs> she has to get out there with a gun even yeah even worse than my firing skills <laughs> much better out in the field okay brilliant Naomi Harris it's been a pleasure thank you very much indeed. thank you very much thank for having you. me Naomi Harriser, lovely, lovely lady. Uh, next up, movie news time. Helen. Hello. What do you have? Um, I have news of Jason Clark. Uh, Thanks very much. James, what do you have? <laughs> Helen, no, I'm going to get No, no, be nice. Jason Clark is Jason awesome. Clark is this is news awesome. you obtained legally, or did you torture people to get it? Uh, well, is it torture? Can we say it's torture? And are <laughs> we taking a position interrogation, on torture either way? No, of course we are, and it is. Anyway, uh, Jason Clark, lately of Zero Dark Thirty, previously of Lawless, uh, has now signed up to another high-profile project, and that is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is, of course, the sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Really Long Title. Which is, of course, the sequel to... I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> I've lost track. And it was Conquest.
quests and battles and yeah. tripods and all sorts Day, of Day, night, yeah. diary, survival. I don't know, something like that. Um, so uh, Matt Reeves is directing the film and uh, a few details have kind of leaked out along with uh, Clark's involvement. So it's going to be set 15 years after the events in Rise, which, of course, spoiler if you haven't seen it, finished with the apes sort of having consciousness rising. and rising indeed mm, and in uh, throwing way. off no and throwing off the shackles of humanity and again not off, in a sex way <laughs> thank you and, and running off to Muir Woods not a sex thing <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> so 15 years on they also released uh, a plague um on humanity, on both their houses. They didn't mean to, though. No. In fairness. But it happened. It happened. It happened in the post credit sequence. They which were I reckless. always thought was a little bit weird. Yeah, really? it was. For people who haven't seen it, what happened in the post credit sequence? post credit sequence is, if you remember James Franco's neighbour, who's an airline pilot, and he mm. um, he, he gets affected with the virus, and the, the, the post credit sequence, and to be fair, I've only seen this once, but he goes to an airport, and we can see that he's infected with something, and then the there's a computer graphics map of the infection spreading across the world, which I think is a pretty major plot development to leave, and, you yeah. know, for a, a part of the film that most people won't have seen because they'll have left. Yeah, Phil didn't see it. I didn't know that. You yeah. didn't know that. Anyway, so the, uh, 15 years later, there's a, a sort of small group of uh, human scientists who are s- still struggling to survive in San Francisco, ape ground zero, um, and uh, presumably come up with, I don't know, a cure, a, a way to kill apes. Who knows? Um, and meanwhile, uh, Caesar, who is, of course, played by yourself, Chris... Or should I call you Andy Circus? Let's ride. <laughs> what? what was that? <laughs> Played by Andy Circus playing Quentin Tarantino, playing an Australian <laughs> slave dealer. I couldn't remember what he talked like. <laughs> Might. <laughs> Moving on. Could I just interrupt anyway, here and yes. just say it's awesome to see that Jason Clarke's actually doing very well because I think he's really good. He is really yeah, good. And yeah, and he's he's had a bit of mixed luck in TV because did anyone watch Brotherhood, which he did with Jason Isaac? Oh, that was him. That yeah, was that's him. Right. And that got cancelled, weirdly, after after three seasons. And I seem to recall they all found out it was cancelled when the DVD box set of season three was released and it said on it, the final season. They were like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, shit. Gotta look for another job. A little bit harsh. Um, and then he did um, The Chicago Code as well with Jennifer Beals, which was another fairly decent, actually, TV show. So and I got cancelled. I think in a year when they weren't treating the best supporting actor category as a sort of lifetime achievement award surrogate, um, he might have got a nomination yeah, for Zero Dark Thirty. He was because he's good very, very good. He was very good. In that. Um, he may have um, suffered because people didn't like what his character did. Yeah. I think, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But anyway, so yeah, he'll be in this. I mean, I, I, he could, I guess, be playing a scientist. Um, he he could. could be playing a sort of. You know, soldier type who protects scientists because he's a large and, and commanding person. He could be an ape. It is not. I have no evidence that he is playing an ape. He could play an ape. I'm sure he is capable of apery. Yeah. So Franco Nogo for this one. As far as we know, Franco Nogo. Franco Dedo. Uh, so do we think he's going to be? The, let's put let's put your educated guess hat on here. Okay. Ellen. Take your lawyer hat off. Put your educated guess oh, hat. So on. many hats. Um, do you think he'd be the lead? Do you think this is a... Because he's not... He's a supporting actor up until now. He has been, yeah. Hollywood has seen him as a supporting actor. I don't know. Maybe we'll see him as a... Uh, maybe they'll sort of split the uh, difference and make him some kind of co-lead. But I'd like to see him get that kind of step up. And I think yeah. the, the franchise is one that did really, really well first time around. There's enough else going on there that you don't need a huge established name. So maybe this will be his chance. Did you know he's Australian? What? I think he sounds like Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. Seriously. (laughs) Doesn't he sound like a Kennedy? This is just me, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is, James. That was the worst Mayor Quimby in the world. (laughs) Or possibly the best Jason Clark. I'm not sure which. There you go. That was Neville Chamberlain. (laughs) I have in my hand 
a piece of paper. It was Andy Serkis doing Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> James, James, what have you got? Uh, I have, well, to be honest, it's barely even a news story. Uh, it is the news story that came out that Mark Hamill has not signed a contract for episode seven. Stop the presses. Wow. Um, but just to sort of delve below the surface of this, this kind of came Please off do. the back of, uh, yeah, just to make it vaguely worthwhile. Um, this came off the back of the Harrison Ford thing that was last week, which is that Harrison Ford may or may not have agreed to be in episode 7 but there was nothing really substantiating that at least this is uh, Mark Hamill talking to entertainment tonight so he has actually you know physically said it uh, but the point is that he did have discussions about would he want to would he not want to which at the very least kind of grounds episode 7 in a certain time frame so that's you know that's interesting to know that that's what it will you know potentially cover um, as he said he hasn't signed anything he may not be in it but interestingly George did say at the time that if he didn't want to be in it they would not recast the role of Luke Skywalker they'd just write him out which is that also gives me a, a certain amount of you know, I'm very very pleased you I, I'm, I'm, I've been firmly against the recasting yeah, of those absolutely. central three characters Same here. Beginning, so that would be so that's, that's quite reassuring as well so I think for, for Star Wars fans though although this isn't news and he doesn't really say much what you can infer from that is good yeah there's another, another inference as well of course which is that it then might focus on Luke's kid if he has one or Han and Leia's children if they have any and I don't know where I feel about that that, that takes us into Kingdom of the Crystal Skull slash maybe Good Day to Die Hard territory possibly uh, I would just like to see something focusing the three the three of them and an old Chewie with grey hair and you know a hippie guitar I would just like to see something like that maybe my, my uh, maybe that's just me being sentimental my favourite thing would actually be a new adventure in the Star Wars universe a, a new one new people new yeah, characters the have these people by the way maybe in the background but the overarching story the of, of episodes one to, that, that's why it's called episode 7 because it's continuing I guess the story yeah. of the Skywalkers but it doesn't have to I don't know it's but that's just, what the standalone movies might be for uh, yeah I, I, I guess I just I would like you know I want to explore this universe I don't necessarily need to stick with this dynasty but the thing yeah. here is now officially from a, from, a, from a Lucasfilm point of view certain parts of the expanded universe are canonised aren't they and certain parts aren't am I mm -hmm. right in saying this so the Timothy Zahn novels which directly cover this particular time frame are those canonically set in stone no I don't think so so are we no, essentially throwing that, that had they yeah. ever essentially said yes this is what happens or was this always say <laughs> yes it's just a book I think I think they, they certainly haven't said that there's in fact they've, they've said that they're not necessarily yeah, yeah. sticking to any of that so they may take inspiration from some of it those so we, are very we, popular be, books they are but we'd be essentially be rewriting that period of history but to me the Star Wars universe is the Empire do you know what I mean that's 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 critical to this mm. so I suppose you're going to have to assume that they'll keep some sort of Imperial remnant around yeah you know rogue so. stormtroopers and, and whatnot. possibly one would hope possibly because frankly you couldn't have the Imperial March without it So you couldn't and that would be that would be awful yeah. although it is Darth Vader's theme yeah, if it's called the Imperial March, I reckon you could get away with it if you had a few stormtroopers running around. I, I guess so. Maybe, possibly, perhaps. I guess. Anyway. I guess one way. I don't know if people might. You know, there, there's always been speculation that Luke could turn to the dark side. That happens in the in the novels. I haven't read the novels. No, no. He's influenced. He's on the verge of turning at one point. Isn't well, it? the, the Timothy Zombot says clones and people with far too many U's in their names. Marajade and, 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 and all weird stuff. little sloth type salamander things that stop the force it, it, yeah it goes a bit mental okay Phil what have you got for us I've got very exciting news for fans of words like franchise potential and four quadrant demographic <laughs> wow stuff. tell us more <laughs> um, a lot of franchise news The Hollywood Reporter has a series of 
um, very interesting interviews with head honchos of studios. They've sat down with um, Universal chairman Adam Fogelson and talked to him about some of Universal's properties. Fifty Shades of Grey is one of them. And from what Fogelson's saying, it's going to happen, but they're not sure quite how or they haven't quite figured out they're, they're kind of trying to work out how they can make this film without it looking like the Red Shoes Diaries <laughs> um, but they haven't quite nailed it but they do think they, they may be able to get it out as early as next summer so sorry all, all of, a, everything you just said sounded yeah, like a double entendre every, every, <laughs> in, every a sex, in a sex way I can quite categorically say this is all sexual um, Coming so they're gonna yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I honestly, I genuinely cannot see how they can make this film a mainstream film. I'm, I'm you know, more power to them if they if they do. But it's an absolute priority for them, Helen. I, I know so that. Just back off yeah. with your negativity. It's <laughs> happening. And not only that, but Snow White and the Huntsman two. That's also happening, and potentially the Bourne Legacy Legacy, the next in the Bourne series. They, the, the box office for that film wasn't dazzling, as everyone knows. But as Fogelson points out, it kind of related pretty closely to the first in the Bourne films, which obviously gives them hope that they can spark it up again. Um, they've, the they've established a universe. Um, they've blown up some wolves. So it'll be another Bourneless Bourne. Potentially, although he did, you know, D- Matt Damon's name came up. I think Matt Damon obviously comes in a package with Paul Greengrass a little bit, and that's probably still a bit of an issue for, for the studio to work out a way to keep all those parties happy. That would be the ultimate for them to get Ren and Damon in the same movie. Um, but that's a watch this space, I think. Um, Snow White and the Huntsman 2, again, is, you know, it's that four-quadrant thing. It appeals to men, women, young and old, apparently. Well, what I think is interesting about that is that they've said that uh, it, is, it is definitely going to be a Kristen Stewart-focused piece, um, but that director Rupert Saunders may not be back. Now, that, there, was well, there was some speculation. There was some speculation that uh, the, the opposite would be true, that it would be uh, Stewart that would, would be sort of... Uh, sidelined or jettisoned from the sequel so that's uh, Snow White you know, without Snow White an interesting thing yeah Huntsman the movie you'd think that he would be more jettisonable than she is you potentially. would potentially potentially um, no disrespect to some, his directorial abilities there, there was some speculation that uh, the opposite might be true and that yeah. events of last summer might hurt her box office appeal perhaps the success of the final Twilight film has convinced uh, them otherwise so. do you think she's very still very marketable yeah, I'd be interested to see how this film does, to be perfectly honest. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see if she can kind of build on, uh, you know, the first film. I mean, it did 400 million around the world. We all kind of talk about it like it was a bit underwhelming, I think, a lot of the time. It wasn't very good. But, no, true. But, it, you know, financially, it was obviously yeah. a big success for the studio and they do see kind of potential there. So I'd, I guess, be interested to see if they could kind of make a better film second time around. Time for a second guess now. It's another Bond girl, hard to believe, Ooh. but yes, Bond girls do throw themselves to the Emperor Pop booth from time to time. Olga Kurylenko, who was Daniel Craig's platonic squeeze in Quantum of Solace, the first major Bond girl in the franchise's history not to sleep with Bond during the film, although after the, the credits rolled, I'm sure all bets were off. Uh, she became also one of the few to escape the so-called curse of Bond girls which I just yeah. made up. Okay. Uh, along with the likes of Famke Janssen and Eva Green, she's carved out a credible career for herself post-007. Nowhere is that better illustrated than in this week's To the Wonder, the Terence Malick film in which she co-stars with Ben Affleck and, hey, Javier Bardem. I know. <gasps> wow. Look at that. Bond all over the place. Uh, indeed. Uh, she popped in to talk about that and much, much more with Phil and Helen. 
we have with us today, Olga Kurilenko, um, to talk about her new film, To the Wonder. Uh, congratulations uh, on the film, first of all. Thank you very much. Um, and working with Terence Malick and, more importantly, making the final cut of the movie after working with Terence Malick. That's uh, no small achievement. I know. How did that happen? <laughs> I was I was watching a movie and suddenly I saw myself running through the field and I, and I thought to myself, I guess I was there. <laughs> I was like, that's me? Ah! There's I made the, it. <laughs> there's a sense that um, Terence Terence Malick's films come together a lot in the editing suite, and probably more this one than just about any other. Because it's such a mood piece. It, yeah. Does it tally with what you were ex- expecting? Did you have any expectations of what it would look like? You know, I guess you can imagine in your mind. Uh, you can imagine it going uh, different ways, and you know, the story being this or that. But you never, you can never guess because in the end, Terry decides and. Uh, it's true that what I saw was a total surprise. It was a surprise. What was the most surprising aspect? Um, well, from? just uh, how how he put um, events together, um, how he also the ending of the film, which uh, had different options, and um, he picked the option that he picked. <laughs> but but it was a different. He spoke to me about other variations that he might have gone for, and I realized okay he didn't. And <laughs> then I was also just figuring out what scenes he cut and and why you know I try to understand why he would prefer certain scenes to the others I just kept thinking where where is that scene that where where is all the other things that we filmed why it didn't make it and I could not really complain because I you know I did make it to the film and I still thought how much how come that so much got cut out but you, you realize that with the, with the amount of material that Terry films, you you can't fit everything. Mm. Uh, you have to. We, we we did know most of it was going to get cut out just because not because anything is bad or or good. It's because you can you can't possibly just fit everything. And we would uh, joke with Ben. We would be walking on the street, and as they were filming us, and there w- there wasn't any sound. Sometimes sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't. And we would look at each other, and he would be like, you know, this is this is not getting in the movie, right? I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> He's like, you know, this is the witches. We're, we're just doing it. And I was like, yeah, I know. Let's skip. <laughs> we just knew it. <laughs> I know. He's like, this is not getting because we, you know, it's it's not because it's not good, but because he's like, this is just so much. Yeah. We just knew. He's like, this probably won't get, and this probably won't get into the movie, and so many other moments. Because how can you, you know, put it all together? It's a ten-hour movie in the end. Yeah. Um, what, at what stage did you record your voiceover then? I mean, was that, you know, the, the sort of finished cut of the film and, and and you recorded it at that point? Or, you know, was it much earlier on? So there were many, many variations with that as well. I mean, how did how did that kind of the, the, fit in? The, the voiceover? The, the sort of narration, yeah. Uh, that I did for about a year after I finished wow. the movie. And I probably read about... 400 pages I'm thinking because I probably recorded at least 10 times and each time it was 30 and more 30, 35, 40 pages per time so it's probably yeah I recorded a book Wow! (laughs) and I recorded in every corner of the world I remember I did in Ukraine in Paris, in London, in Miami, in LA um, in everywhere. Wow! So um, how would it work? You get because you well, didn't start with the script, from, uh, but you you ended up with four hundred pages of dialogue or at least monologue. How would how would you kind of be alerted that you had to do more 
um, oh, he just oh, they would just send me pages and say, okay, where are you in the world? Okay, we're gonna book a studio there, and uh, oh. and uh, can you go in? And by the way, no one was ever present on I your was, own, yeah, on my own. And Terry, Terry, Terry I mean, I don't know. Terry told me, you know, uh, the way you do it is is fine, so I don't I don't need to be there. <laughs> so <laughs> so I said okay, um, and apparently, again, I knew that so much text couldn't be used so I knew I was so so much reading was done just for you know just for as they said for his pleasure they his assistant said you know uh, not everything's gonna get in, in, in into the film but Terry's so happy listening to it and it's inspires him so much so can you please just 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 read it because it helps me you think he's winding movie? you up at any point <laughs> <laughs> just recording bedside bedtime stories for him or? I, I, I don't know I think I think he just you know he gets inspired by story and it's it's true Malik has this reputation for being you know a very kind of serious filmmaker and his films are obviously just incredibly beautiful and incredibly kind of layered and, and detailed and there's so much in them but at the same time he, he doesn't from the stories we hear seem to be you know a grindingly serious person all the time I mean you know you were talking about jokes with him with cabbages is that right <laughs> yeah where did you oh, did, did you read that somewhere yeah. <laughs> oh yeah he was he was he made lots of jokes about cabbage <laughs> because I because I, I like cabbage very much so he was teasing me with that no he he teased me through the whole movie it did was you great get back at him? we laughed so much oh yeah about yeah. well you know things <laughs> you know but you just he's just very um he can be very naughty, like in the way of you know just poking someone, and and he laughs. He laughs, laughs, laughs like a kid. He gets excited, and the, the more, and when we did something funny or a certain mistake would happen on set, he just laughs. He loves those moments. Yeah. Like he would never be like, oh, you know that wasn't right. He loves it. The more the more something goes wrong, the more excited he gets. I would love to see a Terence Malick blooper reel. Oh my god! On the DVD, Seriously. we could have the alternative endings, the one with the car chase that we didn't see, and the blooper reel. That would be great. Um, but we had a rumor that he he he's a big fan of Zoolander. Is that, I know, you know someone anything? told me this. Is this Did true? you tell me that? I no, I didn't. No, I didn't. didn't. It wasn't me. Somebody, no, no, I never heard that. So we'd but, like to think so. But hey, I'm, I'm sure he likes comedies because uh, he, he is he is a funny person. You both, you know, he lived in Paris. You have lived in Paris for a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he spoke French to me the whole time. Did he? Oh, and the directions he gave me in French. And also, like, things... He, he loved it because, um, you know, he likes speaking to his actors, uh, like, personally, uh, so that no one hears. So when he spoke to me French, nobody could understand. So we had this secret language, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he enjoyed it quite a bit. And I was astonished how well he spoke French. Amazing. I mean, he's well. Of course, he lived there for so long. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was a hairdresser. What? I didn't know that. Well, this is the rumor that he, when he lived in Paris, he okay, was cutting I, I, hair. I, I didn't know that. You, you. This could something. be. It could be. <laughs> this could I be. I don't know. I don't think so. Continuation of I'm debunker. Uh, I would be very, very surprised. Well, hey, but he could. He could have started with that. But what I heard is that he didn't he study literature or philosophy or something or taught yes. that or something like that. That I mean, would he's seem quite a, to make quite more a deep sense. guy. Hmm. That would make more sense. I mean, yeah. nothing, uh, not that, hey, not that he, he could he, he, he 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 also, to. exactly, he could always uh, be a hairdresser <laughs> at the same time. And he, I heard that he made, uh, he asked Ben Affleck to kind of keep his distance from you on set just to kind of give that little bit of, of unease or edge to the relationship. Is, did that, was that quite awkward given that there was quite a small crew to, to work with? Well, it's not like he asked him to like keep 
<laughs> distance but he basically he didn't want us to communicate about our characters behind you know behind the scenes right you know you know what i mean during during like breaks which there almost weren't any <laughs> because he he films all the time but still you know on our free time he didn't want us to discuss and come up with things because he doesn't i don't think he likes his actors to prepare or overthink something mm. or rehearse uh, which is the reason of uh, the script not not being given to the actors i think so the so that he would give us the scenes in the morning the last minute basically mm. when we didn't have time to rehearse them at all and we would have to just throw ourselves in them next up we get to see you in oblivion mm -hmm. which looks kind of incredible um tell us a little, little bit about um your character in that because there's obviously an element of kind of mystery around what her role is um <sighs> God, what am I allowed to say about this? Um, <laughs> Whatever you like. Uh-huh. <laughs> If I like, I would tell you um, so much, but uh, they, they want to keep it very mysterious, and uh, it will be a mysterious movie, um, I think, and hopefully. I haven't seen the result. Um, I'm dying to see it. And, um, well, it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic movie. The, the, the imagery is going to be stunning, I think, because we shot in, um, in, in, in Iceland, Um, the the outside the mm. um, landscapes and it was just so it's the most beautiful country I've ever been in uh, nature wise I mean amazing mm. beautiful and um, in interiors are great too because the they build some really cool stuff on set um, so I think visually it's going to be very beautiful but in a you know in a completely different way from uh, to the wonder because mm -hmm. to the wonder you know Malik's visuals are, are quite you know quite stunning too but this is going to be very different it was it's going to be more uh, graphic and um futuristic right um in a futuristic way um lots of cool flying machines um <laughs> um some weird uh, creatures um i play um, a woman that um falls uh, on the earth you know and realizes the, the world has collapsed um, and then uh, I start discovering the the story and how it happened and uh, with it I guess Tom's character Jack is discovering is going to discover it with me and um, a lot of his opinion or his the, his knowledge is going to change I guess it's a complicated it's a complicated also plot but yeah. uh, but it's also because I'm not allowed to reveal so much so it's very hard to, to say yeah. yeah to speak Olga thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure thank you the lovely Olga Kurilenko learn how was she guys really lovely yeah yes charming don't ask me <laughs> I was a little bit dazzled he was too busy getting lost in her eyes a little bit dazzled there was an awkward moment afterwards when she was signing some posters um, for the film and I said something like I was just making small talk about that there's a lot of wild horses into the wonder and I said because of course you learned you learned to, you learned to ride on Centurion and she went yes and I can read as well <laughs> I was like, no, not right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of, that was a moment's pause there for everyone, I think. In that particular yeah. vignette. She won't be back. Excellent. I can read as well, you twonk. <laughs> that was unbelievable. No, it was, she was lovely. Yeah, she, she was very, was very nice. Okay. Yeah, you should do that. Very you cool. should comedically insult every guest we have in the podcast. <laughs> it was a mistake. She misheard. Amazing. I can categorically state that Olga Kurilenko can read 
because she's in movies. <laughs> you need to read to be you a movie. You do need to read you the script. Read. You were right. No. Creative Life didn't have... Oh, sorry, to the one that didn't have a script. Yeah, just had a pamphlet but with she, some pictures. She can read. Yeah, yeah, she did have to read 400 pages of voiceover, so, you know. And I just not even, not even exaggerating, 400. All right, okay. Okay, so let's start our reviews section with To The Wonder, which is Terrence Malick's second film in two years now. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. He's on a roll. Following the Tree of Life, he's got another couple on the way. I know, he's, he's in danger of making Takashi Miike look indecisive. Uh, this one is a lyrical romance starring, as I've already said, Ben Affleck, Javier Bardem, and Olga Kurylenko. Uh, what are our thoughts on this one? Well, Philip? um... <clears throat> it's... It, 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 it kind of... Okay, look, Helen. <laughs> I can do this. I okay, can do go. This. Beautiful, obviously, is the first thing that springs to mind. Absolutely it, stunning. It's, yeah. yeah, dazzling visually. It's probably the most Malachy film has ever been. It's basically the story. It's not really plot driven, but it is kind of like a love triangle that revisits, I suppose, a less mal- malignant love triangle from Days of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, with these three characters the protagonist is effectively this guy called Neil who is an aspiring writer who um, has to jack that in is he? yeah I know I read the press notes this is my point you don't actually know quite what's happening plot wise a lot of the stuff I discovered having read the the, the publicity notes about the film I didn't realise having seen it because of the way that, that, that Malik kind of frames this it is you know a tone poem is such a pretentious term, but it really is a poem, and it's not even a poem that rhymes particularly. This is apparently, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, inspired in some way by Malik's own life, or or or, or a fragment of of his past. I, I mean, is I that, can believe that because it's a sort of a you know, it's a relationship story and a and a story of someone, I guess, struggling to create and or maintain. Um, a love affair. It's it, the themes are universal, you yeah. know, love, separation, the different sorts of love, the practicalities of life impinging upon, you know, the pure emotions. I think everybody can relate to those yeah. things to a greater or lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that sometimes life just just throws shit at you, and you and things don't work out like you'd like them to with the person that you're with at the time. Um, Marina Kurilenko, who's fantastic in this film, she's. I think you know we both thought she was a real yeah. revelation as someone that she she's quite. She's like a sort of loved up wood sprite almost. She has this capriciousness. She has an energy. She's fun. She's also kind of a little um, moody in her dealings with the Ben Affleck character. Um, she's p- from Paris and uh, he's from the Midwest. He's from basically where Malik grew up in, in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's these big sweeping vistas that, you know, if you love Days of Heaven, it has the same sort of honey glow. Yeah. Beautiful to look at. Very little dialogue. And I don't think that particularly serves Ben Affleck very well in this film. I think he his kind of moody masculinity is a little exposed he needs the dialogue and there isn't there's kind of snippets of uh, voiceover that Helen referred to um, this Rachel McAdams is the third part of the love triangle this other character they they separate <coughs> Neil and Jane McAdams character get together lots of wandering around with buffalo and, and wild horses in the in the uh, in the long grass and it's beautiful and you feel a sense of the yearning and you, f- you feel the emotions but you don't I didn't feel the story quite as strongly a lot of details slip through he's not yeah. really this is, a, this is another Malik film and has been transformed 
in the edit suite, isn't it? Uh, effectively, Rachel Weiss, we know, was cut out of the movie completely yeah. as another character. Michael Sheen as well. And Michael Sheen. Justine. Mm-hmm. Jessica Chastain. And uh, I believe the, if you asked Ben Affleck at the time of filming the movie, he might have thought that he was the, the focus of the film, but it actually turned out to be... It's kind of Korolenko, I yeah. would it say. It is kind, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I think we all thought that. Yeah. And actually it turned out to be this Marina character. And it's good because Korolenko is the best thing in it, as mm. well as I'm concerned. She's really good. Weirdly, a turtle from the Tree of Life made it into the final <laughs> yeah, cut. Yeah, that is true. Um, I mean, I, I love Malik generally. I find, like, his films, you kind of have to get into the right mindset. They're almost quite meditative. And once you sort of relax and just go with it, they, they sweep you along and are absolutely beautiful. Um, I had a bit of trouble with this one, though, because while it is utterly stunning, even by his standards, um, there's a little bit... I'm going to steal somebody else's line. Uh, the digital spy review called Kurlenko's character a Malik pixie dream girl. <laughs> and there's a lot of prancing about in fields. Now, I, I expect walking through fields in a Malik film. I don't necessarily expect quite so much pirouetting from a grown woman. Um, and, and it didn't feel like a problem with Kurlenko. It felt like a problem because uh, Rachel McAdams' character Jane does it occasionally as well. Mm. And it just felt like just stop spinning... And, Did you, you know, notice they're also spectacularly bad at going shopping? <laughs> she'll go into the supermarket and just start. She'll like start yeah, she was doing Swan Lake. The, the supermarket as well. Your, get your dairy products. Get your meat. Whatever. Get yeah. it done. Yeah. Pay for it and leave. Are they dancing because they're so much in love? Is that the idea? Not even. It didn't seem to necessarily reflect her state that well. And right. I, I, I find that honestly, at times this felt like a Malik parody rather than a Malik film and that would be my main criticism of it I mean spectacularly gorgeous um, still you know incredibly I mean in the way that Malik does his, his film grammar is great at just conveying emotion and and as as Phil says it, it is like poetry um, but at the same time it, this wasn't vintage for me so it's I think, four stars I think from us yeah it's four stars from us rather than you know I think most of his films have had fives so I guess in a sense this isn't quite up there with the sort of exalted thin red line. He's gone off the boil. Days of heaven. <laughs> he's, he's just churning them out. He's dropped he's the star. them out now. I, know. I blame the turtle. Uh, it's um, it's beautiful to look at and if you, you've got to be in the right mindset for it. It can be frustrating if you're looking for more tangibles. Um, it's something that kind of appeals to the to the eyes and the heart without necessarily going via the brain sometimes. And I don't mean that in a, it's not cerebral, it's totally cerebral. It just isn't in any way, it's more of a montage, if anything. It's like a montage of, 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 of two love affairs um, painted in pastels. Okay, no. so uh, four stars then for To The Wonder. Um, okay, next up we have a lovely... A British film called Song for Marion, which stars Vanessa Redgrave as a woman who is dying from cancer and she turns to a local choir for solace and support, much to the chagrin of her husband, played by the wonderful Terence Stamp, formerly of this pod. Uh, thoughts on this one? Phil, what do you think of uh, Song for Marion? Um, it's really charming and... Um you know, it's got first of all, it reunites two of the great kind of luminaries of British cinema for the last forty or so years. Really, Terence Stamp and Gemma Arterton. and Gemma Arterton. Exactly. Uh, wait, no, Vanessa, Vanessa Redgrave. Redgrave. <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave and Terence Stamp are a couple. She's ailing um, before his eyes, but you know, one of her things she loves to do is she has singing group, which is kind of uh, conducted by this Gemma Arterton character who's full of life and bubble and, and effervescence. And Terence Stamp is kind of like a he's like. Zod on a very bad Monday morning he's not happy about anything really he's quite a cranky <laughs> cantankerous soul and he certainly doesn't think much of the whole singing malarkey yeah. um, so you know what you see I think is it's, it's not an unpredictable love story in a sense I guess it's kind of like um, somewhere between Glee Club and Amour 
maybe you yeah, know yeah, it's because about, she, it's about loss and yeah it's about loss and it's about grief and it's about expression and mm. joy you know yeah. a little bit like Till Wonder in some ways this is really uh, an interesting departure for Paul Andrew Williams because he's he's been largely you know, he did London to Brighton and he did The, the Cottage and um, Cherry Tree Lane and so he's he's he's, he's known for hard hitting blood soaked thrillers slash horrors so it's a it's interesting to see a British director take such a a, a left field turn um I think in his career and mm. he, he pulls it off well um, I think it's a very personal movie for him he's going to be on the podcast next week so we can ask about it then and, and in fact if you watch Song for Marion this week and if you have any questions about the film whatsoever uh, you can ask Paul us so use the hashtag Empire Podcast and we'll get him to him next week and we gave it three stars which as we always say in the Empire Podcast is a recommendation it's mm. a very good it's a it's a lovely little tearjerker this film I think mm, a lot uh, of hard and uh, really well acted by uh, fantastic cast I mean to say really well acted by Terrence Stamp Vanessa Redgrave seems somehow gilding the lily not, yeah, yeah but yeah there you go uh, three stars for that one and, and at any given time Guillermo del Toro has approximately 837 projects on the go one of those arrives to cinemas this week uh, it's Mama which he produced and it's a horror film about two young girls who were adopted by their uncle and reluctant aunt played by uh, Nicola Costa Waldau and uh, Jessica Chastain after disappearing for years but they may have brought with them a spectral supernatural guardian who will stop at nothing to protect them so what did we think of Mama US number one box office hit Mama you just like saying the name, don't you? Mama. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed this, actually. I thought it was um, just the right kind of levels of scares. So uh, you've basically laid out the plot already. Um, worth mentioning, perhaps, is that Nikolai plays a double role. He does, yeah. Um, he plays the kid's father and their uncle. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it does set up a very creepy atmosphere. Um, uh, Jessica Chastain plays a little bit against type as a sort of um, irresponsible, you know, rock chick. She doesn't want to have kids... Um, She's kind of not prepared for any of this um, and ends up kind of having to, to step up and, and take care of these two kids. Um, and, you know, there's a nice mix of kind of jump scares and more sustained sort of creep and then big in your face monster moments, <laughs> you know. So uh, you, you do see the monster. This is not one of those films where you don't actually see what you were talking about. No, you know, yeah. you see it quite early on. Um, although generally not not fully not fully in focus for mm. a little while um, but yeah I, I really enjoyed it now we gave it three um, Kim who's obviously a big horror expert uh, felt he'd seen a lot of the elements before and felt that the story could have been kind of strung together a little bit more effectively I think that's probably true but at the same time I, I didn't care when I was watching it I really enjoyed it yeah uh, no, in terms of his mood and his tone, I think it's it's excellent. It's got a real sense of creepiness. Um, it's directed by uh, a first-time filmmaker called Andy uh, Muschietti, mm-hmm. um, who Guillermo spotted after he made a short film called Mama. Um, it was a three-minute long film. If you check it out, it's on YouTube. It's actually pretty much in one shot, and it's, it's quite terrifying. Uh, and it's the kernel of the story of the movie, <coughs> yeah. which they then expanded. Uh, Neil Cross, who um, writes Luther came in and did a pass in the script and so you know it, it holds together pretty well yeah. I would say and the Mama character is played largely practically by uh, a Spanish actor called Javier Bote and um, he uh, I was on set for this a couple of years ago in Toronto and he is absolutely terrifying to watch yeah. in the flesh he's about seven feet tall spindly gangly 
arms that go places that you wouldn't imagine arms could do. He can contract him and bend his arms, and it's 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 quite terrifying. He had this sp- spooky death mask face on. The face was the, uh, bizarre. Yeah. yeah, the face is is not a not a happy face. It's not a happy face, but it's a it's a more layered movie. I think the most horror films would be. It's about you know, motherhood and abandonment and love and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, very very good indeed. Mm. Uh, three stars we gave it. It is a recommendation. We'd probably go a little bit higher, wouldn't we? Personally, I think we would, yeah. We would indeed. Okay. Last but not least this week, we have Cloud Atlas, the stupendously ambitious adaptation of the book by David Mitchell. No, not that David Mitchell, the other David Mitchell, which sees the Wachowskis and Tom Tickford join forces to direct Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Hugh Grant, Ben Whishaw, Jim Broadbent, Hugo Weaving, Jim Sturgis... Uh, Duna Bay, Susan Sarandon... James Darcy. James Darcy, James Darcy, thank you. In a group of stories that span space and time, and that's as much effort as I'm going to give to try and sum this one up, because it's up <laughs> to you guys now. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, James has drawn the short straw. It's this a tricky one. Um, th- this has actually taken a while to come to us, hasn't it? Because it was out in the US in what, October? Yeah, yes, so right to say. Yes. Uh, so we've had enough time for it to generate an astonishing amount of hate. Uh, sort of in general and to n- not make a lot of money but it, that, I mean neither of those things I suppose are hugely surprising it's not the most commercially accessible film uh, it, it's a bit of an odd one because each one of these uh, sort of time spanning stories is uh, is very distinct and each one seems to sort of um, I believe and Helen you can tell me mm-hmm. this the book they ape different literary styles don't very they much the different so. things whereas in the film they very much ape different uh, cinematic styles so yeah. you've got the as aforementioned Ealing comedy section uh, with Jim Broadbent although he's in loads of them so that doesn't really help um, and you've got sort of a, a sort of 70s sort of slightly trashy almost pulp cop drama section you've got the sort of the sci-fi stuff and uh, it, it, it's it's a melange of different things um, with the same actors. Um, I, I honestly, it defies it defies explanation. Really, I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, the only thing I felt it lacked, I think I said when I came out of it, was that it didn't seem to have an obvious through line between the various stories. They're connected principally because there's the same people in them, mm. but beyond that, oh, and there's one point involving a tattoo, but beyond that, they're not really connected to one another, other than what we do in life. Echoes in eternity. Yeah, that what? is that is sort of the message. I think uh, it, it it's more connections by theme and by uh, good and bad and the, good and evil, really, mm. as much as anything else. My understanding was that they they are the same souls. Yes. So there is a sort of karmic connection between the the characters, and and they change. So you you meet the um, Jim Sturgis character at the beginning, and he's kind of. <laughs> he's kind of embroiled in this slightly nefarious scheme as an actuary in the South Pacific in the 19th century and he's a bit of a dupe and he's getting done over by Tom Hanks who's a bad guy and then by the end by the final vignette Tom Hanks is kind of he's found you know his inner righteousness I suppose slowly and Sturgis in the fifth section likewise becomes a, a freedom fighter so it, it kind of tackles these issues of servitude and tyranny and, and, and freedom but I agree with you in the sense that it isn't clear particularly mm. it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't hammer you over the head with any of that no but I think that's actually part of its charm I yeah. think it's nice and they did a very good job as I understand it again Helen you've read the book mm-hmm. uh, the structure of the book is a sort of pyramid structure isn't it where you get sort of the first half of these various stories and then you get the second half of them is that right yes yeah, so, so you get the first half of uh, 
going uh, from the furthest point in history forwards, yeah. um, you get this, the first half of all the stories until you get to the sort of the sixth story, I think it is, where you get the full story and then they go back down the pyramid, if you will, the other side and tell you the second half of all the other stories going right. from future to past. Whereas with the film, obviously it's all chopped together and interchanged and it cuts and hops between the various yeah. time frames. The adaptation work on this is astonishing. absolutely yeah. bog- mind-bogglingly complicated. I can't imagine what went into writing that screenplay. I really can't. No, Appar- Apparently it was a lot of post-its and uh, little cards oh, yeah. with various okay. events on them and they sort of moved these around on the floor until something made sense. But it's Really well cut dazzling. together though, I thought it worked really mm. well. Very impressed by that. I mean, I, there, there's been a lot of talk of the of the, the the I don't want to say prosthetics, the makeup in this, and accusations of racism and whatnot. And I, honestly, I think that's all rather silly. But there is an element of if you're trying to make a Caucasian person look like a Korean person, or if you're trying to make a Korean person, look, you, it does echo elements of you know white chick slash true identity. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it looks a bit wrong in places. If you've got Halle Berry playing a Korean man. Who gets angry in that scenario? The internet, apparently. I, it's just, I mean, I think Jim Sturgis got, got singled out because he, he, he tweeted probably a little um, ill-advisedly about, you know, the fact that he was playing a Korean man and this yellow skin, which is a horrible mm-hmm. term, controversy, and he tweeted, you know, something basically saying, you know, it's all, everything is everything in this but weren't, film. weren't people sort of actually going on and saying, well, couldn't they get Korean actors to play these people? Well, that, that rather defeats the object. Well, that's kind of the point. Yeah, it's not about starving people of work. It's that he's playing... He's playing the same person. Well, the same soul, as you say. And, and equally, yeah. Duna Bay plays, you know, plays um, an American she woman does, in the first... In, and what is perhaps the most upsetting bit of makeup in the film. There, but, the makeup um, is distracting at times, there's no question. But, you yeah. know, the ambition is... It's breathtaking, and I think you know we want films with more ambition, don't we? We don't want no, no, like, the same old, same old. So I think you know on that basis, people should go in with an open yeah. mind. It, it's a, like a bit of a movie jukebox. You go in for three hours, and it's a bit like watching Martian Commander, um, Blade <laughs> Runner, the Parallax View, you know, Kindhearts and Coronets. All of these yeah. you know, bits of all of these things together. It has the the, the Wachowskis and Tom Tickwas stamp on it too. That's a really interesting combination for me. How does that work out stylistically? Because it, it wasn't a case where the, the Wachowskis would go off and do one half of the film. The three of them were on set as directors. No, they had different segments. They, they, had different different segments. Segments. Okay. they did the sci-fi predominantly, and um, the uh, first segment, I think, yeah, I'm right in saying, in the South Pacific, so. yeah. and then Tom Tickwell had the more period stuff. Obviously, did perfume, and he kind of knows his way around that. That made sense yeah. of a sort of division of resources. Um, Tickwell finished his first, and I think for one of the segments, he was on set with them. But okay. they never really kind of worked together, but they were always on the phone to each other. They were always saying, we're doing such and such, the character's done this, you need to bear that in mind in your section, because everything knocked on mm-hmm. you know not just in the world that they've created but in an actual practical filmmaking yeah. sense so um, it was a complex business really complex and very hard to finance and very hard to get made and another one of those like unfilmable novels that's not on the screen yeah. Yeah. I mean and, and this makes you know this makes Life of Pi look filmable mm, in, in, you know, in terms of the, the novel on the page mm. I, I just think I mean you do have to get past the makeup you do have to get past a couple of accents Ooh, there yes. are moments uh, which you know this is not a flawless thing but it is absolutely fascinating and the fact uh, that it's not up for best adapted screenplay and best editing at the Oscars is is genuinely mind-boggling again because I think you know if if we were looking at the difficulty of the job rather than how much you like the finished film then the Academy would absolutely have 100% nailed on nominated this in both categories um, I think they just didn't like it and and it's not there but I, I honestly think I think if you're also a, generally flops and it is a flop sadly yes 
tend don't to get be overlooked. Uh, absolutely, yeah. and I, I get that. But at the same time, the, the, the work involved in the in the editing and the adaptation here is is just incredible. And it's making money in Europe and you know, abroad outside the US. So it's not a total disaster, I think, financially. But um, yeah, it's uh, Ian Nathan who reviewed it for Empire. He made a really good point, which is that it, it is something that tackles the world. You know, it's such a big thing and those sorts of films are always going to be you know there to be shot down if you ask about if those different genre styles is jarring you know he kind of makes the point that actually life is kind of ridiculous and sublime you know there's a combination of all these different kind of bits of silliness in the film as well as the really serious bits um and that kind of reflects what they're trying to do so Mm. yes it is jarring but deliberately so i think and uh, yeah you know massive kudos i guess to the actors for taking a gamble on something like this yeah, Absolutely. Tom Hanks, I think, was the big driver for, for a lot of them. He was the one that really kind of drove it through from an acting point of view. I think if Tom Hanks hadn't signed on, this movie probably wouldn't have been made. Absolutely Certainly not, not at the level. And who doesn't level. want to see Hugh Grant as a skull-face-painted cannibal? You don't get Souls. to see that every day. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah. a film fan, Jay Dooley, I think you should go see this. And we gave it four stars, which again is a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> so do go and see Cloud Atlas this weekend if you can. And that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined, as I've said, by the aforementioned Paul Andrew Williams, director of Song for Marion, and also the mighty Mr. Mark Wahlberg. Yes. That's right. Somehow we managed to squeeze Marky Mark and his funky bunch into our tiny pod booth and the results, James, were explosive. Good, yes. It was great company. Good, good, good. Uh, that's up next Friday. Until then, don't forget our Oscar special, which will be up on Monday. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Farewell. It's goodbye from James. Adieu. Ordinarily, it'd be goodbye from me, but one reader has specifically requested a return of Pod Bye, and it will be there for really? you, Shirley, of me to refuse. Really? Pod Bye.